This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we learn about aviation accident litigation with a partner from a law firm that specializes in those cases. In the news, some distressing recent air traffic controller behavior, the FAA acts on the safety team recommendations, three United Airlines employees are accused of accepting bribes, a cargo drone airline achieves first flight, the Collings Foundation ends their air tours, and Alaska Airlines looks to acquire Hawaiian Airlines. We also have an Australia Desk report. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 777 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is, first, Rob Mark. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He spent 10 years uh, in the er, with the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening, everybody. It's uh, it's another beautiful evening, and it's just a few weeks from Christmas. Uh, so I, I just want to make sure that everybody has our mailing address, because I know they're going to want to be sending uh, their favorite airplane geeks their Christmas presents, I, I think, aren't they? <laughs> we have gotten a few in the past, actually, but it's not a you regular have? thing. You didn't Bob. tell us about them. No, I kept everything for uh-huh. myself. Okay. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Hey, everybody. Great to be here this evening. I am uh, pinch-hitting tonight for Max Trescott, even though David won't be here, but I'm pinch-hitting for Max. And today was the first day I got to clean snow off my car this season. Oh, God. can hardly wait. It's fine. All right. Yeah, Max Trescott is off on a a little adventure, an interesting little adventure that uh, will take him out uh, the next or this in the next week, so two weeks I think he'll be off, um, but we hope to have some interesting comments and thoughts from him when he returns. Our guest this episode is Erin Applebaum. She's a partner at Kreindler and Kreindler. Now, within Kreindler's aviation practice, Erin focuses on representing individuals killed in general aviation accidents and commercial airline disasters. She currently serves on the Plaintiff's Executive Committee for the Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 Boeing 737 MAX litigation against Boeing and other defendants. She's also part of the team challenging the deferred prosecution agreement between Boeing and the Department of Justice. Aaron specializes in litigating claims governed by the Montreal Convention. That's something that we're going to talk about. She also teaches a popular aviation accident CLE course for other attorneys. And for the industry publication Annals of Air and Space Law, Aaron contributed her insight on a recent landmark decision regarding British Airways and the application of the Montreal Convention to injuries caused by unexpected conditions present during passenger disembarkation from international flights. Well, Aaron, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, it's always fun to be among my fellow aviation geeks. I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys tonight. 
We are, too. Lots of interesting things to talk about. We've got kind of a full episode, so we're going to move right along and get started with some of the week's aviation news. Our first story comes from Yahoo.com. This is Drunk and Asleep on the Job, Air Traffic Controllers Pushed to the Brink. Well, Rob, we have some distressing ATC incidents that have been reported recently. A drunk controller, smoking marijuana during breaks, an employee who threatened another. Uh, there's other reports of sleeping on the job, working under the influence. Uh, do you think these are just isolated actions that are the same that would occur in any other professional group? Oh, I don't know if I would go quite that far. Uh, but, I mean, they are a, a lot more common than people might think because these are human beings and they're working pretty hard. And when people uh, get tired or stressed, uh, they do things like this. But, however, um, this is you know, kind of going to link up with the kind of going to link up. Boy, that was an awkward sentence. This is going to link up with the story about the FAA's uh, uh, safety review team recommendations we're going to talk about in a few minutes as well. But they're short of controllers. They have never recovered from the PATCO strike of 1981. There have been a few uh, occasional high points and many low points. Uh, but, But to think that uh, let's see, how many years ago would that be? 40, uh, 41 years ago? Uh, they are still short of people, and controllers are still working often six-day weeks, 10 hours a day, mandatory overtime. And, uh, you know, it, if we try to do that with pilots, the the world, the flying public, would be up in arms about it uh, and say, oh, my God, I'm not going to get on that airplane uh, but when it comes to controllers, we seem to say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's the government. I mean, what are you going to do? And, and, and certainly it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, formula for success. So is this related to some of the incidents that we've had? I, I'd say absolutely. You know, they are overworked. They are understaffed. They're in really old, deteriorating equipment and buildings in a terribly high-stress job. You've got to expect there to be some cracks someplace, and they're showing more and more, and it's starting to get very dangerous. And I kind of have a, a question, and Aaron, feel free not to comment on this if you don't want to, but should there be an accident that ends up happening that can easily be blamed on a controller and the FAA in this issue, and you're representing some of the people that were victims of this, of whatever disaster may occur, can you sue the government? What happens? How do you handle a situation like that? You can sue the government. You can sue the FAA, you know, when air traffic control makes a mistake. And we do that now. Um, you know, we have cases where air traffic controllers aren't paying attention or they tell somebody to fly into weather or they don't check in and, and there's a crash. I mean, we bring cases like that now. Um, it's difficult, though, to successfully litigate against air traffic controllers because they have the ability, they're allowed to make their own calls. The standard of liability is not as high as when you would, you know, just sue the average everyday person. Um, they have a, an exception where, um, they're permitted to make the call that they deem fit 
rather than, you know, there's, there's not like an ABC law that they have to follow. You know, they, they can say, well, this is what I thought was best. And then that trumps. Um, it's, so it's difficult to be successful in a lawsuit against air traffic controllers, but there certainly are situations where it's applicable and, you know, there, there are mistakes. And I have to say though, I think air traffic controllers are doing the very best they can. Um, I think that they have the deck stacked against them right now because of the severe staffing crisis. And, you know, I, there are a lot of solutions that need to be enacted, but right now I, I think that a crash is inevitable. I think that it, it's going to happen sooner rather than later just because the government, the FAA is not properly addressing the shortages. And can you sue the FAA? Yes, you can. Do I want to be in the position where I have to sue them because there's been a crash because an air traffic controller is supremely fatigued? Absolutely not. Well, and I wonder too, I mean, we, we have a, a new administrator who's only been on the job, I don't know, six weeks or something. And, and we have not had a permanent FAA administrator for a couple of years now. And, and so I wonder, uh, not, not that a permanent administrator is the solution to every problem, but having somebody at the top who is just kind of passing through the revolving door probably doesn't help a situation like this. And uh, I remember I wrote a story for the Chicago Tribune back in, well, let me think, I left the FAA in 86, so maybe it was shortly after that, so 35 years ago, and the issues were almost exactly the same, uh, except for the fact that they used to say we're underpaid. And they can't say that now because air traffic controllers are making incredible amounts of money compared to the rest of uh, uh, the rest of the American public, especially when you consider that you do not need a college degree to be a controller. You just need to have the ability to make it all work. So I'd like to give uh, Mike Whitaker the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, Mike, <laughs> you know, Okay, you've been on the job six weeks, so uh, what have you done for us? Uh, but, I mean, I think it's coming down to that because I agree with Aaron. I mean, we've had so many close ones. I mean, how, if, if this was your teenage son or daughter driving and they'd had 12 near accidents uh, because of one reason or another, wouldn't you be saying, my God, you're not getting in that car because I know your, your number is going to be up very soon. And I think a lot of people are, are beginning to, to feel the same way. And I, I, I hope I am absolutely wrong. But again, I agree with Aaron. I think, I think there's one coming. And the most frustrating thing is that it's, we know it's an inevitability. The NTSB knows that it's an inevitability. They're having congressional hearings and just talking about it. And that's the most frustrating part for me is watching people just discuss what should we do rather than taking steps forward to actually make changes. And we've seen this before in aviation accidents in the past where People know that there are problems with certain parts on the aircraft. They know that there are issues with certain engines and, you know, the government is so slow when it comes to enacting change. Everybody knows it's coming, but they're not doing anything to fix it. Because nobody thinks it's it's not my fault that they're slow. It's it's those other guys over there that are dragging their feet, not me. I've done my part of the job, except that uh, when it comes to the government, there are so many people that have uh, responsibilities to to create a decision 
that you you lose track of it and you say did I thought we already talked about this three months ago and they say oh well yeah yeah we got to get through committees and and uh, subcommittees and make more recommendation and, and people just go oh, that's the government um, so it, it, it's it's sad but I again I I feel bad for anybody that's involved in one of these coming events because it's coming. But as we all know, the, the rules are written in blood, so there will finally be yeah. change, but this has to happen first. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, one thing that has happened is we see that the National Airspace System Safety Review Team has issued its report. And in the FAA's press release, they say that they are taking immediate action to enhance air traffic controller safety and uh, or training and safety reporting. And there's a number of different, I don't know, six or seven, uh, maybe six uh, points here that the FAA presents as the actions that they are taking. One is that the FAA is going to work with the Air Traffic Collegiate Training Initiative Program. That's where um, colleges and universities, they want to ensure that their graduates have the necessary skills to begin on-the-job training at a facility. Uh, the FAA also announced a year-round hiring track for experienced controllers from the military and private industry. They also say that they will keep filling every seat at the FAA Academy and increase classroom capacity beyond current limits. And that deals with a number of controllers. Also, that the FAA will expand the use of advanced training across the country. The agency has uh, new facilities in Chicago and San Diego, and they're going to be adding them in Nashua and Phoenix in the spring of 2024. They also uh, plan to finish deploying tower simulation systems at 95 facilities by December 2025. And then to strengthen the safety culture, the FAA says they will provide reports from the Air Traffic Safety Oversight Service to the FAA Administrator and Aviation Safety Associate Administrator. So these are the, the, the points, the results, the actions that the FAA is taking as a result of this, uh, this team report. I've got a question for you, Rob, just because I know you have experience in this area. I, are they looking for the wrong kind of people? Is it time to reevaluate what we're looking for in a controller? I mean, do they need to take a more holistic approach now? I mean, I, air traffic control is a very tech-driven job, right? What about these Xbox kids and, you know, people who might not necessarily be your traditional air traffic controller but might have the skills and the drive and the ability? Well, that's true. And and uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, a number of high-profile people were part of this uh, safety review and uh, – uh, I think they're looking at just those kinds of issues because the the ATCI ATCTI or whatever the acronym is for the people that go through the community college programs. What that does is that eliminates them uh, from the line of of needing to go to Oklahoma City, where that training is basically okay. Aaron, you're not a pilot, you're not a controller. And Micah, we're going to teach you about weather and how an airplane flies and different speeds and that jets go faster than little propeller air. You know, all the basic kind of stuff. Uh, but the controllers still need to to actually get in there and do the job at the at, at the tower or the radar room uh, where they're assigned. And that's where the biggest problem is, is that 
about uh, two out of uh, three get through the training. So we're losing a lot of people along the way. And, and honestly, air traffic has always had a high failure rate because people think they uh, one might like the work. Personally, I did like it. I just hated working for the FAA. But because uh, it, it is, it's very exciting. If it's a, it's a mind uh, 3D chess. If you ever watched Star Trek, you know, where, where uh, Spock is playing 3D chess with everybody. And that's what air traffic is. It's up, down, left, right, fast, for, you know, and, and some people love that. And others say, you know, I thought I was going to like this, but it's just, it's too fast. I can't handle the pressure. And, and unfortunately, we don't know sometimes until they get out in the field training, maybe for six months or eight months, that they're not cut out for this. And, and then there are people that just, man, they, they catch it and they're right in there. But there are still too few of them. So how can we figure out a better way to um, eliminate some of those people that are going to fail before they spend six months or a year on the job training. Uh, personally, I think they have one of the solutions right here with these, uh, these simulators that they're mentioning. Because the simulators, I mean, I saw the one at, uh, at, at uh, O'Hare, I'm sorry, at uh, Chicago uh, a couple of months ago. And it, it is the radar room at O'Hare. I'm sorry. It, it used to be at O'Hare. <laughs> it's not at O'Hare anymore, but it's the Chicago radar room. But it, they can simulate everything that goes on from bad weather to incredible amounts of traffic to pop-ups at the satellite airports. And, and you can jump in and do it or fail or, or whatever. And, and you can watch somebody either uh, get, get to the point where they, they love it and it's, it's working or they go, ah, Get me out of here. I, I don't want to do it anymore. So again, I think that, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like flying. Uh, we've come to use simulation technology so much now because we can, we can put people in situations that are incredibly threatening uh, scenario-wise, but don't actually threaten the lives of people. And again, that's where FAA has always been a failure because when I did it, they said, well, you won't be a controller. I was like, well, yeah, I did it in the military. And okay, come on down. And uh, uh, you go to that tower and just jump in there and do it. And some people just said, oh, my God, this is not what I thought. It was awful. And beside the fact that we got paid really lousy money compared to what they get paid now. But again, so I think that the, the technology issue is going to help but now I'm not a, uh, uh, what would that person be that looks at, not a human relations person, but someone that looks at the characteristics of a person oh, yeah. that might qualify for that job. Uh, yeah, you'd think they would have taken a look at that kind of before and, and you know, identified successful. Well, wait a minute. Successful Remember, Aaron had the answer. She said, they were kind of slow. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. so it's. Yeah. 40 years later, I mean, anyway. But Rob, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, because you worked not only as a controller, but you were flying for a major airline as well. Yeah. And you said that, you know, being a controller is kind of like being a pilot, but I think it's really different. I think the human factors are different. Because if you're a pilot, you know, you have some 
stress taking off and getting to the pattern, but then you're in cruise and you can kind of relax keeping up with what's going on. And then there's some stress as you're following the controller and landing. But if you're a controller at O'Hare or JFK or Atlanta or LAX, you go into your job and you are under stress. You are constantly going under that stress for that full eight or 10 hour shift. And there's no relaxation other than, you know, you get your coffee break or you get that. It is solid stress the whole time. And then you go home and you unwind from that and you come in the next day and you're doing it again. So I think there are human factors that I don't know if they can be accounted for. Oh, you're right. And and thank you for bringing that up because I didn't mean to make it sound like the the stress level for a pilot is the same as a controller. I meant in terms of loving what they do and that you you get people that either just love it or those that hate it. Um, but no, you're, you're absolutely right because uh, when you have six, seven, eight airplanes on frequency on a, and let's say you're working a radar scope and they're all moving uh, at the same time at different speeds and you've got to go, wait, I can't, got to get this guy out of the way because he's too fast. He's catching this guy. Oh, but this one's got to get down because he's got to get in front of that. You know, there's a lot of things that are going on and then you throw weather at it or you throw a person in that's tired or uh, as somebody said earlier, you know, somebody's a little hungover or... Or doesn't speak English as a first language, you know, in terms of the pilots that you're dealing with, you know? It's funny. I've heard a lot of people on frequency from the cockpit that are not natural or native English speakers, but I don't hear that very often on on the ATC frequencies uh, because I think FAA has probably gotten that down to a science of look i'm sorry you can't think in chinese and and translate into english and I'm, i was talking about the controller dealing with the pilot that's a non-native english oh, speaker oh, I see. <laughs> you know trying to <laughs> communicate with that way yeah yeah no that's 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 what i meant but anyway. uh yeah no you're you're right uh, and we've heard you know if you ever listen to live atc you can go up and listen to the guys at, especially at kennedy or newark uh, that are having trouble with international flights uh, from Europe and Asia where someone or, or South America where that person that's working the radios is not as chatty in English as we are. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, I look for the third time, descend and maintain 8,000, the speed's 250 knots. And you want to say, so you got it this time, but of course you can't say things like that because you get, you get thrown out on your butt, but you're human. You, you know, it's like, well, it's like talking to kids. You know, you say, I've said that to you about six times and you're still not listening, are you? And, but again, it, it, it can be very, that's also very stressful, but there's so many different factors. It's, it's like an accident. It's not just because, uh, you know, the, the geared turbo fan on this Airbus had a problem. Uh, there was also weather. There was pilot fatigue. There was uh, something else going on in the person's head. At this, so the, the Swiss cheese model. But again, as far as controllers go, we have been incredibly lucky that we haven't had an accident. But again, I, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but we're lucky we haven't had an accident. Yeah. All right. Well, I haven't read the entire safety review team report. It's about 50 pages, though, and we'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. So if you'd like to to go through it yourself, you're you're more than welcome to. It's uh, the six individuals who signed 
the report. It's it's a pretty high powered group of uh, of individuals. Two of them have been guests on this podcast, but the committee, the uh, the team, uh, is made up of um, Michael Huerta, former FAA administrator, Charlie Bolden, former NASA administrator. He's been on this show. Tim, is it Canole or Canole? Uh, the Alpa guy. Yeah. Also, uh, Patricia Gilbert. She's the executive VP of the IFATCA, right, the International Federation. Also, uh, David Grizzle, he's a former FAA chief operating officer. And uh, Robert Sumwalt, who's been on this show before, a former uh, NTSB uh, board member. Episode 325, I went back and looked at it. That's right. Just to see how long ago it was. But how many years would episode 325 uh, have made that. I quite quite a few. Come on, Max, you're good with numbers. Yeah, subtract uh, from seven hundred and seventy-seven and, and yeah. <laughs> divide by fifty. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. We need to uh, to keep pushing ahead. And th- this next one is it comes from our uh, one of our favorite sites, paddleyourowncanoe.com. And I find this very distressing that people do this. This is three United Airlines employees accepted bribes to award lucrative multi-million dollar renovation contracts at Newark Airport. So there was a federal probe. These three employees have pleaded guilty to accepting bribes and kickbacks. They had work done renovating their homes. There were some Rolex watches involved. There was some money that exchanged hands, quite a bit of it, actually. And they've been charged. Now, this is uh, was to award a contract, one of the contracts, uh, again at, at Newark uh, Airport for the uh, uh, the work that's being done at those at those airports. So all three have been terminated by United, uh, and, and these were not low, super low level uh, people. This was a corporate real estate director, an airline senior manager, and a contractor. Micah, it's just beyond me that, that people think they can get away with things like this. Well, you know, we can talk to certain senators and congressmen about this kind of thing, too, um, as even a, a senator from New Jersey but uh, and, and, and a congressman from New York, uh, without mentioning any names. But, you know, I wish that uh, we had the story or the story came out before uh, we had Rick Cotton on as a guest, because I think it would have been an interesting uh, discussion with him about how you handle those kinds of things as you're spending uh, $30 billion on renovating an airport. It's a difficult scenario. It, it sounds like this could have happened in Chicago. It does sound I mean, like that, that, It seems like uh, this is the way we have politicals. I, except nobody asked me if I wanted my house renovated. Um, <laughs> well, okay, never mind. Well, I, I, you know, I've been in the contracts business before, and to me it's a matter of having the internal controls in place um, that help prevent this kind of activity from, from going on. Now, we don't know what United has or doesn't have in place to try to control this this type of behavior, um, but it, it sounds like something that uh, that uh, that company clearly needs to uh, to look at and reevaluate, see if they have the right kind of management controls. And I'm sure it's happening now. I mean, no company would let something like this go without having a major investig- internal investigation, and we will never know the answer to it because it will be internal. So these three people face a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison, uh, as well as a fine of up to uh, $250,000. Most of them received more than that in bribe money. 
Um, sentencing, they did plead guilty. Sentencing is expected to take place next year, 2024, towards, uh, well, about middle April, I guess, April 17th and 18th, uh, it says. All right, next up from Simple Flying. Qatar Airways partners with world's first cargo drone airline. Now, this is uh, Qatar Airways Cargo, and the drone company is Dronomics. Initially, they're going to link the Dronomics drone ports in Greece with Qatar's worldwide network. Now, you know, I mean, we've talked about unpiloted aircraft for many years here, and we see certainly see lots of companies entering this space, especially the sort of the eVTOL region. This is a, a, a fixed-wing propeller-driven aircraft. It's called the Black Swan. It's got a 26-foot fuselage, 52-foot wingspan, 770-pound cargo capacity, 1,500 roughly mile range. And um, they had the first flight in uh, in May of this year, May 25th, 2023. I don't know. Th- to me, this feels like kind of the first time it seems like this might actually work out. It really looks amazing to me, and I think it's time for it to happen. You know, we've been flying MQ-9s and aircraft, you know, a little bit smaller than that quite some time remotely. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do it with cargo. I just wish they had chosen a better name other than Black Swan. I know. I mean, that has a connotation in the world that makes it, you know, kind of a rare, one-of-a-kind event. But I think it. what what better place to, to test it over other than out over the Mediterranean or over the desert or something like that to see if this works. Yeah, yeah. Now, they've uh, this company has also got some other partnerships. They've partnered with Aramex for cargo drone flights. Aramex is a, uh, is a large freight company, logistics company um, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so um, there's some other business that they're they're working on putting together. There is a uh, a webinar coming up on December 14th. So that's very close, like within the next week is after this is published. It's called Reimagining Supply Chains, Cargo Drones for Same-Day Delivery. I'm pretty sure it's a free webinar. And uh, if you're interested, you can register for that at uh, dronamics.com. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And we also have a video, a YouTube video of the first flight of this, and so you can really get a sense for the size and uh, and certainly the enthusiasm of the of the individuals who are involved in this. And we'll have that in the show notes. All right, Micah, we see this in Flying Magazine: Collings Foundation grounds air tour for World War II aircraft. This has me very sad. We we all know what happened with the B seventeen nine oh nine, and it's something that's. Uh, very personal to you and uh, and me, Max, uh, because uh, me too. Did you did you know uh, Mac uh, Macaulay? Yeah, I did. In fact, I flew on that airplane a couple of summers before this accident. Yeah, and so I after that happened, I thought, oh my lord. Yeah, it was a week after we interviewed Mac, and we stood under the number four engine that failed, and he they went down, and there was a terrible loss of life and a horrible situation, and the. The NTSB report is not too good on the Collings Foundation. So there was a huge lawsuit that was settled, and uh, we don't know what that settlement was as settlements go. And perhaps part of the settlement was that they were going to ground the rest of their fleet. But I have a great deal of emotional concerns about this because, first of all, I love seeing those aircraft flying. I've written 
stories about seeing those aircraft flying that uh, have aired on the Airplane Geeks, and maybe we will re-air them at another time. But this brings history alive. And um, what the Collings Foundation said was that the Wings of Freedom Tour was to allow World War II vets to see the aircraft they flew in to fly, and those World War II vets are now mostly gone, so the mission is accomplished. But to me, it's about letting people who have never seen these aircraft fly be in the sky. And I remember well, one of the stories I wrote about was watching the Collings Foundation and watching a father and his eight-year-old son see a P-51 fly for the first time. And that aircraft is now probably grounded forever. And if you don't see what history was and understand what these aircraft were like and what it was like for these kids, because remember, the captain of a B-17 in World War II was probably maybe 25 years old at the most, and that was the old man. These kids flying these really crazy old tiny aircraft, you don't understand what that war was like and what, what history was like. So it's a shame, and I hope it doesn't mean that we're going to be seeing the grounding of all World War II aircraft. Do you know, I, I have a friend here in the Chicagoland area that was a, a B-24 commander, and uh, he told me that, uh, Howard told me that he was a, a commander when he was almost 22. So he was actually 21 at the time he took a crew out. And let's not forget, they had people shooting at them. I mean, not just ground fire, but fighters coming in in swarms trying to, to, to shoot these aircraft down and and we talk about the the stresses of you know flying today, uh, and it is nothing like what these guys went through. Uh, and I say guys absolutely because there were no women that were commanding uh, uh, bomber aircraft or fighters uh, during the Second World War. And you know, I have a, a question about this for for you, Aaron. And, and and if you want to comment on it, that's fine. And again, if you don't, it's okay. But when you fly on an aircraft like this, before you go. You sign a release. And if you sign a release saying that you're willing to take the chances that go on and something like this horrible accident happens, how can you then, you or the family, sue and bring the organization to court after you've signed a release granting this? Well, many times you cannot. Uh, many times we are stuck because people have signed releases where they assume the risk of, of what may happen. And in an airplane like this, especially, um, you know, the, the risk is there and it, it's very tough to get around those releases. Now, there are times where there are loopholes and, you know, you can say, well, they assumed the risk where they might be injured or killed, but in an expected way, this was completely unexpected. And, you know, there are ways to get around it. But in the majority of cases, when you sign a release like that, you have assumed the risk and there's not much we can do for you. Hmm. Now, these these aircraft aren't going to disappear. Right? They're going to be at the American Heritage Museum in Massachusetts, in Hudson, Massachusetts, which, uh, I, I, you know, I was unaware of this. This is, uh, well, it's west of Boston between I-495 and I-95. And I mean, I'm, I've driven past this place probably a hundred times in the past and never never knew it was there. But they, they have about 50 aircraft, over, over 90 vehicles, um, some other artifacts. They have a rebuilt Hanoi Hilton POW cell. They also have part of the Berlin Wall. Interesting museum. And they're going to add uh, more than 90,000 square feet so they can display these aircraft from uh, World War II and World War I as, as well. 
You know what, Max? That museum is probably about halfway between us, and we should make arrangements this summer. If you're not, uh, or in the spring, if you're not, you know, all over the country again, to meet there and and visit the museum and maybe see if we can do some interviews and, and meet some people about it. I think that's an excellent idea. And again, I just can't believe I didn't know about that before. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we want to mention that uh, this uh, item in Skift, Alaska Airlines in deal to buy Hawaiian Airlines for $1.9 billion. This is an all-cash transaction. Alaska would buy Hawaiian for $18 a share. That's where you get the $1.9 billion. And interestingly, that includes the $0.9 billion, the $900 million worth of Hawaiian Airlines net debt. And, uh, Rob, I guess they intend to operate, if this goes through, operate Hawaiian still as an independent brand. They don't plan on merging the brands. At least that's what they say now. I think this is completely different from what's happening with Spirit and JetBlue because Spirit is going to completely disappear and become part of JetBlue if the merger goes through. In this case, Hawaiian is going to be a wholly owned subsidiary of Alaska, still maintaining its own independent fleet. And it's sort of like how American Airlines owns Piedmont and Envoy and PSA. They are owned by American, but they're separate airlines. And I think Hawaiian's going to be owned by Alaska, but it's a separate airline. And uh, I, I think that this is this is probably a good thing for everybody in the long run. There are two airlines that people love, as opposed to that have you know good relationships with with their customers and, and great reputations overall, as opposed to you know JetBlue, an airline that people tend to like, and Spirit that everybody loves to hate. Well, and, and I think too that the um, uh, the issue for Hawaiian is that Hawaiian was in trouble anyway. Uh, they were having ca- they're, they're still having cash flow problems. Uh, they never quite popped back from the pandemic as some of the other carriers did. So I think people will realize that if Hawaiian doesn't get this kind of help, it's probably going to be. Uh, uh, not long for this world. And uh, I don't think anybody wants to see that either. But again, that's what makes it, I agree with you, that's what makes it uh, very different from the uh, JetBlue Spirit uh, agreement. And in listening to Marketplace on NPR before the show, Hawaiian airline stock tripled today. Oh, did it? That's not a surprise. Damn, I should have bought it yesterday. Darn. Both boards have approved uh, this uh, transaction agreement. They expect that the... Uh, shareholders and, uh, you know, others will approve it. They, they are looking to close it in 12 to 18 months. The combined organization would be based in Seattle uh, under the leadership of the Alaska Airlines CEO, um, as is now. Now, they've created a, a new joint website. It's called localcareglobalreach.com. And you can find out more information about how these two airlines are viewing what they're trying to accomplish. And we'll have uh, some links and some other to some other information in, in the show notes. There's a, a site for investor materials and uh, sort of general news on this from Alaska Air. All those will be in the show notes. The joke going around is that, you know, Alaska Airlines just recently got rid of all their A320s, and now they're getting a whole bunch more.
Again, we're speaking with Aaron Applebaum. And Aaron, uh, we just have so many things we want to talk about. We probably won't be able to get to all of them, but a lot of good topics. On the subject of aviation accident litigation, can you just say a few words about how often do we see this? Is this something that happens all the time? Does this happen only with major airline accidents, uh, general aviation, anything in between? Kind of, Can you kind of scope the, the magnitude of this uh, topic for us? Well, I, I guess it depends on what you mean by all the time. Um, not compared to the millions of people that fly every year and the thousands of flights per day, litigation is actually fairly uncommon, thankfully. You know, but if there's a plane crash, for example, then sure, it is common for the families of the victims or the surviving personal injury victims to pursue claims for damages and to try to find out what happened and why it happened in the hopes of preventing it from happening again. I do a lot of wrongful death work pertaining to general aviation crashes. Uh, thankfully, not very many commercial aviation crashes. I mean, the 737 MAX has been a, you know, a monster case for us, but we don't get a lot of commercial aviation accidents, thankfully. But I do a lot of personal injury work uh, that's governed by the Montreal Convention, which I know we're going to talk about later. Um, but those are inju- injuries and deaths that happen on international flights. Um, but I think the common thread is that my firm and most all aviation firms, we don't do frivolous work. We do serious personal injury cases representing people that are injured through no fault of their own and trying to seek justice for them, you know, no matter what their injury is. And uh, who are the defendants typically? Well, it depends on what kind of case you're talking about. Um, in the 737 MAX case, you know, we have, uh, we're suing Boeing um, because, you know, there are issues with the airplane. On a lot of these Montreal Convention cases, I mean, all of them, we've sued the airlines. The Montreal Convention only governs cases that uh, have airline defendants. When you have a, uh, a general aviation crash, it's going to almost always be products liability case. Um, every now and then we'll have an interesting one where, for example, um, so we've had cases where we've sued a flight school or like we were talking about earlier, we've brought lawsuits against the FAA for actions of their air traffic controllers. Um, but for the Montreal Convention cases, it's 100 percent of the time an airline who we're suing. I'm curious what what happened. I, I noticed that the the Chinese are starting to uh, uh, work on litigation related to the uh, Malaysian 370 disappearance from, I don't know, however many years ago that was, five, six, seven years. Is that the kind of thing that a firm like yours would be involved in, or does that get thrown to some sort of international litigation firm or... I don't know. I'm sounding like someone who knows absolutely nothing about the law, except that my mom said if I did anything bad, I'd get spanked. So, <laughs> No, that's okay. Um, that, that's exactly the kind of work we do. And that's what makes our firm and others like us so specialized is that there are laws that apply only to these international crashes that, you know, you have to, you have to know this law. Um, so we do work on a lot of international accidents. That being said, we work on the ones where there's a U.S. connection. Um, we wouldn't work on a case like, for instance, this Malaysia case you're talking about was, you know, it happened overseas and the manufacturer was not American. And there were, I think there were only a couple of Americans on the plane. Now, when you have a case like, um, ET-302, the Ethiopian Airlines crash, you have an American manufacturer, 
You have Americans on the plane, lots of Americans on the plane. Um, we represent a lot of people who are not American, but because the manufacturer was American and we're suing them in the United States, we handle their cases. There has to be a United States connection for us to handle it, but we handle almost all of our commercial cases happen overseas. Um, we haven't had a domestic. Well, actually, that's not true. We, we handled, um, cases recently, but they didn't involve crashes. You know, they involve deaths, but not crashes in the United States. But we, almost all of our cases have been overseas in the past decade. Can we talk about Ethiopian 302 or is it still active and it's not something you can comment on? The civil litigation is still active. Um, but that being said, I, I can certainly hear out your questions and see if it's something I can comment on. I am involved in the civil litigation and the uh, challenge of the deferred prosecution agreement. I know you all want to discuss uh, the criminality aspect of plane crashes, and so I'm involved in the civil and the criminal aspect of that case. Um, there is a lot that I can comment on. If there's something that I'm not allowed to talk about, I, I won't hesitate to let you know. Sure. Well, well then I'll, I'll ask the question, because Max and I, we, we did a little research on this way, way before. We way be- I mean, months and months before we knew you were going to be here, and we've talked about it, and there have been reports from the NTSB and the, the fr- French version of that, the uh, the EAIB, talking about that Ethiopian crash and saying that there were airworthiness directives that came out months before the crash uh, that weren't uh, that didn't go through to the pilots and that it was a pilot error as well as a pilot error took place because. And Boeing, you know, had the issues that we know Boeing had, but, but this crash could have been prevented based on pilot error. And looking at the reports, and I have some of the quotes in front of me because Max and I took notes on it again months ago. If I were defending Boeing, I would say, wait a minute, you're blaming us? Look at what the reports are saying. How can you be blaming us for it? And I guess that's the question that I have. How can it fall back to Boeing if both the BEA and the NTSB are saying that the, the Ethiopian report was wrong. They missed this stuff and here's what really happened. What you're saying is accurate. And I will tell you, we were extremely disappointed with the NTSB issuing a statement, proactively issuing a statement, which is sort of unheard of in situations like these. Um, but our position that we've taken in our challenge of the deferred prosecution agreement is, is very public and you know, so I'm happy to talk about it. It's that the pilots were not given sufficient training and the airworthiness directives that they were given were not specific enough and they were given them too late and they did not adequately instruct the pilots on what to do in a stressful situation. Now, here's the problem is you can be given a piece of paper or you can be given an iPad and told, you know, this is the MCAS, this is what you, and they didn't even call it MCAS. They were talking about runaway trim and, you know, they, they referred to it by a different name. They didn't even refer to it by its proper name after it had been discovered. But what we were trying to argue down in Texas when we uh, are trying to get the deferred prosecution agreement overturned is that the pilots needed simulator training. And even if they were given on paper, what they are supposed to do in a situation like this, when you put them in the cockpit and you have sounds and lights and stick shakers and, you know, people are freaking out because they don't know what's going on and it's a brand new situation that they've never encountered before, you can't equate that to, you know, somebody writing what they would do in a textbook or, you know, in an airworthiness directive. It's you have to have simulator training when you're preparing somebody for a situation that could result in a catastrophic consequence. And because they didn't, it is 
it's outrageous, frankly, that they blame the pilots for something that was the result of inadequate training. And it's, it's especially to me disgusting that they blame foreign pilots, you know, in, in an effort to other them. I mean, Ethiopian Airlines is a, is a top-notch airline. And to, to make those pilots sound like they didn't know what they were doing is completely unfair. But wouldn't that fall back on Ethiopians' training of the pilots as opposed because the airworthiness directive was out there? And that's how airworthiness directives are sent out anyway. So that's a whole FAA thing as well. But, uh, but wouldn't that fall back on the pilot training and not on Boeing? Yes, it does. But where does Ethiopian Airlines get the idea for what they're going to do for pilot training? The, the United States is the gold standard of aviation safety. They look to the NTSB and they look to the FAA to say, you know, what are we going to do in our own countries? And, you know, this is the problem is that there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of issues with the FAA. And, you know, I, I know you guys know the background of the MAX. I won't get too deep into that, but they, they looked at the FAA and they looked at Boeing and they said, you know, Boeing and the FAA in the United States are not making their pilots do simulator training. Why would we divert from the rest of the world in the United States and do our own thing when, when nobody else is doing that. I mean, it it's just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and of course, at the time, uh, we didn't know why, well, many people didn't know why uh, Boeing was not requiring simulator training because their their major launch customer for the airplane, Southwest said, we, we, we want an airplane that we don't have to send people through the simulators on. And can you do that? And Boeing said, oh, sure, we can do that. And and it wasn't until, oh, I don't remember exactly the dates, but we weren't talking about MCAS after the uh, uh, Ethiopian uh, accident, uh, not for a little bit. And, and finally, somebody said, well, you know, the MCAS, actually, pilots didn't know about it at all. They were never even taught in training that the MCAS even existed. It was kind of like a runaway trim. It, it would sort of display that way, but it wasn't exactly that. So if you treated it like a runaway trim where you pull a circuit breaker and turn off the motor and then try to hand fly the airplane, it's kind of close to what was going on. And, and any pilot should be able to get themselves out of that. So what's the big deal? But I mean, they did kind of leave out a few really significant facts that that Boeing overlooked when they uh, certified that airplane. Yeah, they they completely forgot to tell them that it was going to kick back yeah. on once the autopilot came back on. So I mean, it it really uh, I, I think that the pilots were done a real disservice, it's especially you know they're not even here to defend themselves. So. But the, uh, I guess the question that comes up again is that the BEA, a completely and totally independent agency, came up with the same result. I mean, it, it doesn't mean it's correct, though. I mean, it's. I, I think that, you know, I feel very, very strongly that these pilots needed simulator training. And, you know, we went down to Texas and we had experts come in and, you know, three different experts testify that these pilots, if they had been given simulator training, the crashes would not have occurred. And, you know, we had our judge down there agree with us. So I think that despite the fact that the safety agencies have come out and said these things, I mean, you know, you trust them, but, you know, you have to always be cautious. I mean, and sometimes they're not always right. Yeah, that was a great win for you guys. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Aaron, what is the venue for this? Is this, uh, is this, is there a jury? Is there going to be a jury or just before the judge? 
Well, the civil cases where we're um, litigating against Boeing are being tried in the Northern District of Illinois in federal court. Um, we did not bring Ethiopian Airlines into the lawsuits. Uh, we are only suing Boeing and a couple of other defendants who are responsible for the manufacturing on the airplane. The deferred prosecution agreement challenge is taking place in federal court down in Texas. Um, it's the same court where Mike Mark Forkner was tried. Um, it's the same court where uh, the jurisdiction where Southwest is located, you know, the original customer for the MAX. Um, it really, frankly, doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the DPA to have been entered into down there. Um, there was nobody really involved in the criminality aspect of this down in Texas. It should have happened in Illinois. It should have happened in D.C. And, you know, we've, we've said this all along that there's a very conservative judge down there and I, you know, it seems a little more than just a coincidence. It seems strategic that, that they ended up down there and the, you know, the day before January 6th happened, you know, they were down there signing the deferred prosecution agreement. Um, and, you know, metaphorically speaking, in the dark of night, it, it was more than a little suspicious. I mean, why isn't it in DC where the FAA is? Why isn't it in Illinois or why isn't it in Washington where Boeing is? There, there's really no connection to Texas aside from the fact that Southwest was an airline customer. In a case like this, to what extent do you have to basically teach the judge about aviation things? I mean, you know, you have a lot of knowledge concerning airlines and aviation and aircraft and the whole thing. But a judge or even a jury in, in a case like this may not, correct? So how do you bring them up to speed or educate them so that you know, good decisions can be made, or do they not depend on any of that at all? It's just strictly legal issues not related to aviation. Well, in the Montreal Convention cases that I do, um, it you know you get a lot of judges, and they're always in federal court, and so the judges are very intelligent, and you know your average jury is your average jury, but you do have to teach them what the law is and they don't always get it right. And sometimes they're, in my opinion, of course, but you know, sometimes there are decisions that are issued where I say, Hey, I don't agree with you. I, I don't think that, you know, I think that was an accident under article 17 at the convention. And I don't agree with, you know, what, what you found to be true. So I'm going to appeal this decision. And, you know, it's the Montreal convention cases, I would say are, are a little tougher because they're a little more subjective when you're interpreting what the law means. Um, but when it comes to the uh, really complex cases where you're dealing with a general aviation crash and it's a mechanical issue or it's, you know, the max crash, I have found that judges and juries tend to be very motivated to learn. Nobody likes to feel like they don't know what they're doing or they don't understand something. Um, but that's also why we bring in experts and we work with some of the you know, most talented, intelligent experts in the world to explain these things to the juries and to the judges. And, you know, that's the purpose of an expert. I, I can talk about it all day long, but in reality, I'm, I'm no expert. I'm just a lawyer. And that's why we have somebody who has been trained for decades and knows what they're talking about to come in and talk to the judge. I mean, many, many times when we were down in Texas and explaining to our judge why the pilots needed simulator training, you know, our piloting expert had a replica of the maps and she would turn to the judge and, you know, point to places on the plane and was shook because he was making the decision. We didn't have a jury. Um, so, you know, she's explaining to him, it goes up, it goes down. This is what MCAS did. And, you know, he was very motivated to learn. He was dialed in. You know, we got lucky. Not every judge is like that, but he was nodding his head. He was following along. And I think 
I think he issued a very intelligent opinion where he clearly understood what was going on. And, you know, it's people need to have more confidence in the jury system because I think that juries generally want to get it right. And when it's a topic that they don't really understand, they work really hard to try to understand it. Hmm. Well, what is the, I, I want to get into the Montreal Convention and, and understand a little bit more about what that is and how that applies. Uh, but before we move on to that, maybe just give us a, uh, you know, kind of briefly describe what is the status of these of these cases that we've been discussing? The civil litigation cases are progressing towards trial. We've had many of them settle. Um, we've had trials scheduled, through, I think three separate rounds where cases have settled right before trial. Um, the, our judge recently mandated that Boeing has to make offers in the remaining cases, and then the, the uh, attorneys have the option to accept them or to continue mediating or litigating. But, you know, it's, it's going on. It's been going on for several years now, but I, I don't think it will go on for too much longer. I think that we are kind of nearing the end where cases are either going to go to trial or wrap up. And, you know, it's been quite the slog and it's been very tough for the families to have to relive that day for, you know, the last almost five years. So it's, you know, it's I think everybody will be glad to see them wrap up eventually. Um, but the current status of the challenge of the deferred prosecution agreement is your guess is as good as mine. We appealed to the Fifth Circuit. We, um, and I know I said we were successful down in Texas. We were, we were successful in several of our motions to get an evidentiary hearing. And the judge declared that the uh, crashes were caused, that the lack of simulator training was a but-for cause of the crashes. The judge said that with certainty. But at the end, he said, I wish I could help you, but I can't. You know, I know you want remedies. I know you want the agreement to be thrown out, but it's not my place. It's not my branch of government. I can't do it. And we appealed that decision to the Fifth Circuit. Um, we told the Fifth Circuit that at the end of the deferred prosecution agreement, when, you know, Boeing gets to, it's basically, let's say you're a criminal and you rob a bank and you get probation. And the judge says to you, when you get, you know, at your sentencing, he says, you come back in five years. And if you haven't committed a crime, then I'm going to, you know, clean your record up and dismiss the charges. So this is exactly what the DPA is. The FAA and Boeing came to an agreement where if they changed their safety culture and they could, you know, no more incidents and they could prove that things had improved over five years, then they're going to sign off on, uh, on the DPA and dismiss the charges and that's it. It's done. Um, so that happens in January and we need the Fifth Circuit to make a decision on our agreement, uh, sorry, on our appeal before then, because what we said to them was when Boeing comes back to court and the judge reevaluates whether or not they've complied with the DPA, the judge has the ability to say you haven't complied and, you know, reopen it and throw out the, you know, the DPA and start over again. But we need the Fifth Circuit to send it back down there and say that the judge has the ability to do that. Um, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, but we're still waiting for the Fifth Circuit to to issue its decision on whether or not the case can go back to Texas and be reevaluated by our judge down there. Who's who's covering the as the plaintiff's attorney, essentially? I mean, who is covering the cost of all of this, all of these billable hours, I guess, for no for no better term? So plaintiff's attorneys don't work on billable hours. Um, we are not paid until our case is resolved. 
we as plaintiff's attorneys lay out the costs and expenses for experts and, you know, liability research and, you know, everything that needs to be done in the case to prosecute it. We lay out the funds. And then when the case is resolved, we have what's called an attorney fee. Um, and the percentage of attorney fee differs from case to case and firm to firm. But, you know, the bottom line is the firm gets paid when only when the client gets paid. So, there is a common benefit fund that the um, the plaintiff's executive committee has where every plaintiff's attorney who has a case pays in to help pay for the experts and help pay for, you know, all of the, the research that's being done. Because, I mean, it's a massive case. One firm would have a very tough time uh, financing it by themselves. But because we have so many firms that are working together, we work together to lay out costs and expenses. And, um, you know, but it, but it's that's how plaintiff's law works in general. That's not just for this case alone. So it's a, uh, a very organized and well thought out gamble in some ways, because you're taking this all upon you. And if, if you lose, uh, we, we, so hopefully, you know, you don't, uh, that you lose, you lose it all. Is, is that, is that kind of how it works? I mean, you need to know that this case is really good for you before you want to take something on, I'm assuming. Right. And, and I presume you're not talking about ET302 because, you know, in any case where there are you know, horrible, it's a horrible crash with fatalities. It's, you know, undoubtedly a worthy cause. But I, I presume you're talking about smaller cases. When I'm just talking about cases in general. I mean, I'm not, uh, and I'm, and I'm, no aspersions being cast here at all. I hope it didn't sound like that. I'm, I'm just no, saying no, that you've got to, to in terms of, yeah, making decisions. It's got to be a really tough decision as to whether or not you're going to do it or not because it's so costly. So that's a, a big part of being a plaintiff's attorney is evaluating inquiries as they come in because my, you know, we have a, a serious practice. We don't do frivolous work. We, you know, we want to help people, but at the same time, we need to take on cases that are going to be successful because we don't want to waste people's time. And so that's a big part of handling plaintiff's cases is evaluating at the very beginning, is this case going to be, they don't have to be guaranteed successful, but they at least have to have a promise of success. So, you know, in many uh, Montreal Convention cases, it's a, a big, there's a lot of effort that goes into analyzing the inquiries that we get because we get a lot. It, are we going to be able to prove that there was an accident in this case? Are the damages enough where it's going to be, you know, worth the time to put into it to you know, take the case to completion? And by damages, I mean, you know, the seriousness of the injury. But then you also have to look and say, does the defendant have the ability to be sued in the United States? Are they a foreign defendant? Is, you know, are we going to be able to get jurisdiction? Um, there are so many things that go into evaluating a case like this. It, it's why it's important, you know, some people might dismiss what we do as just personal injury, but there's so much more to it than that because the law is very different when it comes to being injured on an international flight or even, a, you know, an airplane flight in general. Um, because we have to analyze so many different aspects of the law. You know, we've mentioned the Montreal Convention many times already. Maybe we can talk about what that is. Sure. Um, it's hard for me not to talk about it because it's what I've dedicated my career to. Um, you know, from my very first job ever, I was working on the Montreal Convention. So what it is, is it started out as the Warsaw Convention. Um, at the dawn of the aviation industry back in the 1920s, there needed to be more protections for both passengers and the airline industry. Um, the Warsaw Convention was written in an effort to promote aviation, to protect airlines from getting sued and being bankrupted. They wanted to protect aviation so that the industry could flourish. So what they did is uh, 
representatives from many, many different countries gathered in Montreal and, or pardon me, gathered in Warsaw for the Warsaw Convention, and they wrote laws that would protect the airline industry. They would put caps on damages for, you know, if, if people got hurt on airplanes or in airplane crashes, and it was very limiting. Um, it did not work in the favor of passengers. So time went on, and, you know, people were fed up with the airline industry having so much prominence and so much, um, they had so much leverage over passengers when it came to people getting hurt. So they changed the law. They changed it to the Montreal Convention um, in 1999. And what the convention says, in most countries, uh, most first world countries and you know even smaller countries are signatories to the convention, it says that if you are injured in an accident, injured or killed, then you can have compensation based on a strict liability standard, meaning you don't have to prove that the airline was at fault. And it's always an airline defendant. Um, but there's a cap on damages. So you are able to get damages up to a certain level. And right now it's about $180,000. It's measured in special drawing rights. Um, you can get compensation up to that level. And if you want to surpass it, the airline has to show that they weren't negligent. So it's it's a little complicated when it you know when you're talking about the individual articles, but the one that we focus on the most is Article 17, which defines what is an accident. You have to be injured or killed in an accident in order to be compensated. Well, it's it's not just you know the the layman's term accident. There's the convention actually was written in French, and so we've had to interpret it to say what did the original you know what was the drafter's original intent, and you know we we do that more often than you would think. So what did they mean by accident? Well, the Supreme Court has defined it as an unexpected or unusual event that happens external to the passenger and not as the result of an internal reaction. So an internal reaction would be something like a heart attack. You were so scared by turbulence, you had a heart attack, or you know you had an asthma attack and there was nothing the airline could have done about it. That's an internal reaction. External stuff is like a suitcase falling on your head or, you know, I'm talking about the more minor cases, but, you know, you get water spilled on you. Um, something interesting about the convention is it prohibits compensation for purely psychological injuries. So it, it's really interesting. And so say you're sitting next to somebody and he spills his hot tea all over your legs and you get, you know, really bad burns. You can seek compensation from the airline, even though that wasn't their fault. Um you know, or you can't, you may determine you're not able to prove it's their fault. So he can, you know, you can seek compensation up to that cap on damages, which is about 180. Now, if the airline was negligent, you can go beyond that. But that's the standard Montreal Convention accident. Now, let's say that the guy next to you exposed himself to you, but he didn't touch you and, and you are traumatized and you, you have anxiety attacks and you can't fly and you're in therapy, you know, cause the airplanes remind you of what happened. You can't seek compensation for that because your injuries are purely psychological. If somebody drops their suitcase on you, you know, you, you can seek compensation from the airline. But if they do something that doesn't physically injure you, you, you're out of luck. Um, the law has evolved a bit recently where you can seek compensation for your psychological damages, but you have to also have an accompanying physical injury. So, for instance, I had a client who uh, was in a runway excursion and there was a, a fire afterward. And everybody exited out in the wing and he jumped off the wing and he broke his leg. Um, he can seek damages. He can seek compensation for his PTSD that he had after the crash. You know, he can't sleep. He has nightmares. It's, it's all, you know, he's really affected by it. He can seek compensation for that. But if he hadn't injured himself jumping off the plane, 
he has no avenue to seek compensation. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So the convention applies only to international flights. Um, there are jurisdictional rules where you have to, um, you know, you have to meet one of five particular jurisdictions in order to sue in the United States. Um, and an issue that we are finding more and more lately, when I started my, I started my career in 2010 and we often sued foreign carriers in the United States because let's say we would sue Aer Lingus in the Eastern District of New York because they fly into and out of JFK all the time. And, you know, it's no problem. Nobody ever, you know, put up a fight over that. Well, recently the foreign air carriers have been fighting very hard to keep their cases out of the United States. Um, and the law has been changing very quickly, you know, from circuit to circuit. And it's much harder for us now to establish personal jurisdiction over foreign carriers in the U.S. So the typical Montreal Convention case that we see um, would be somebody who was injured either abroad on a foreign carrier or they were injured on the ground in the U.S. on a uh, on a. I'm sorry, they were injured abroad on a domestic carrier or they were injured here on the ground in the U.S. on a, on a foreign carrier. Um, but there has to be a U.S. connection now, whereas in the past that really wasn't so important. So I guess if somebody exposes themselves to you and you're traumatized by it, the best thing to do is to break your finger in the tray table first. You better hope he put his hand on your thigh. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, God. Okay. See, that's the kind of thing I would have said. That is. But, okay, thank you for doing that, Micah. That's why we invite you when one of the other people are sick. But you know what I was going to ask? Because I know it was before you started practicing, uh, Aaron, but uh, say in the, in the uh, Air France 447 accident that happened out over the South Atlantic in 2007, I think, 2006. It happened in 2009. Nine. So as I said, in in the Air France accident <laughs> that happened in two thousand and nine, uh, would would you guys have been brought in? I, I know there were Americans on that flight, but I'm just curious. It it was a French carrier, obviously happened in international waters. Uh, what happens in a situation like that uh, as far as the litigation? Um, well, like you said, I wasn't around for that one, but I. You would, you would litigate the case in France, you know, in, in no uncertain terms. It's a French airline. It's a French manufacturer. Um, the issue was with the pitot tubes. It's a, it's a French manufacturing issue. And even if it's a maintenance issue, I, I know there were some, you know, some uh, back and forth about whether or not there were things happening in Brazil that maybe made the tubes not so, uh, not in the best condition, but, that being said, it's not a United States grounded case. There's a concept called forum nonconvenience, and it essentially means that the forum is not convenient. And even if you could establish that a certain foreign airline is subject to suit in the United States, like you could say, you know, Air France flies in and out of the U.S. all the time. You know, they're essentially at home there. They should be able to be sued there. The airline can say, yeah, but the forum is not convenient because the crash happened overseas and, you know, the airplane was manufactured abroad and the maintenance happened abroad and the, you know, all of the evidence is abroad and it doesn't make sense to keep it in the U.S. So we would never try to bring that case in the U.S. because of the FNC concept. Even if you could establish jurisdiction, you would have no hope on FNC. And, and that happened with the Malaysia 370 case where, um, some people tried to bring suits in the U.S. and they were told by a judge that FNC applied and, and the cases had to go overseas. Aaron, what, 
What was your path to get to this point? How did you get into this field? Did, what, what came first, the law or aviation or at the same time? How, how did you navigate to the point you're at today? Well, I have always wanted to help people. Um, primary for me when I was in law school and thinking about what I wanted to do, I wanted to fight for the little guy and I wanted to stand up for the, you know, the cause of justice. And initially I wanted to do that in criminal law. I wanted to be a prosecutor and, you know, stand up for people who had, you know, who were crime victims. Um, and I was going to work at the DA's office in Brooklyn. And then I graduated during the recession in 2010. And my hiring class was told, you can come back in a year or you can find another job. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I was in a lurch where I needed to find something to do. And I ended up working for a solo practitioner who practiced aviation law. And he taught me, you know, the basis of everything I know today. His expertise was in the Montreal Convention, and I knew nothing about aviation. And it just so happened that aviation and I are a good fit. Um, I love it. I fell in love with it. It it was, you know, from the first day I started, I, I never wanted to do anything else. I, I've gone to uh, two different firms since then, but I've always practiced aviation injury law. And as my career has progressed, I've, you know, started handling wrongful death and commercial plane crashes and, you know, different kinds of cases. Um, but aviation was never something I imagined I would be interested in until I, I started working in it and, and essentially just fell in love. Um, so it's, you know, today I get to do something that I'm really interested in. I, you know, I, I, but I also get to help people. And that to me is the best part of my job is my clients are in their absolute darkest hour and they need somebody to help them. They need somebody who knows the law and what they're doing and is able to let them grieve and take over. And that's why I think aviation law is so unique because we have to be able to not only console grieving families and, you know, do a damages assessment of, you know, what was a person's life worth. But we also have to figure out why did the plane crash? What went wrong? And how can we change the law so this doesn't happen again in the future? And, you know, my firm in particular has worked very hard to change aviation safety and to strengthen aviation safety after crashes, like after the Colgan crash, you know, we were very active and in the changes that took place after that. And, you know, I have to give all credit to the family groups. You know, we were there with them, but it's, it's all them. And, you know, the, the family members of people who die in these crashes are just amazing people. And, you know, it's our honor to represent them. So it's, you know, it, it has really exceeded my expectations and initially did not know what to expect from aviation law, but it's, you know, plaintiff's litigation combined with aviation is, is really something else. And it's a, it's a pretty exciting field to work in. Uh, I've, I've, I've got a question since you mentioned Colgan. Uh, of course, the current FAA reauthorization is kind of being held up as uh, uh, some people would like to change the uh, uh, regulation from uh, requiring an air transport pilot certificate for everybody flying, even in the right seat of a, of a Part 121 carrier. Uh, and I'm curious, I, I, having interviewed some of the family members on the Colgan crash uh, years ago, uh, boy, I never saw a family, a group of families get together and change Congress's mind on anything except in a few very rare occasions, maybe with uh, uh, product liability or something like that, maybe the 
Tylenol thing or, or something. But uh, I'm curious, do you, do you have an opinion or, or can you give us your thoughts on that whole changing of the regulation thing? Or am I putting you in a really awkward position? No, I, I think that it's essential to get families involved when you want to change regulations. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about how Congress moves at a snail's pace. and But when you put a human face on tragedy, and it's not just, you know, an airworthiness directive was not paid attention to, and it's you have people sitting in the audience holding photos of their loved ones. And I mean... The, the Colgan families are incredible, but you should meet the ET-302 families, especially, you know, they're the American families like um, Nadia Milleron and Michael Stumo have been relentless in pursuing aviation safety when it comes to advocating and lobbying Congress. And um, they've made huge change. And it's, you know, it's been pretty incredible to watch them work. And they have a family group in, in Europe for the European families that's doing the same thing over there. Um, it, they're relentless and there's no way to make change in Congress or at the FAA unless you push them. And, you know, we've all seen what happens when you don't push. I mean, when the Southwest Airlines, you know, flight 1380 happened, did you know, you know, they had been going back and forth about these engines for months and, you know, talking about how there had been issues with them and, oh, maybe Southwest wants to issue a comment. I mean, nothing will happen unless they're pushed to do something. And the best way to do that is to put the human face on tragedy. And that's what these families do. It's got to be a real emotional roller coaster for you in some ways, dealing with these grieving families, fighting with, with the FAA or, or, or with other organizations or, or airlines, and then winning and losing. And it's just got to be a really, can't imagine a more difficult practice in some ways. It, you know, it, it takes a very special, you know, it takes a certain kind of personality, I think, to be able to do this day in and day out. Um, I think what's critical for us is that you have to compartmentalize. You go to work and you do the work. It's you. It's you have to remember it's not all about you. It's about these families, and you know they they've lost their loved ones, and they're the ones we're seeking justice for. And it's it's easy to deal with the hard stuff when you realize what you're fighting for, and, and what you're fighting for is to to make change. And, you know, I'm not just getting compensation for my clients. I mean, what, what's money when, you, when you've lost a family member? What we're doing is, is we're making real change to make sure that nobody ever has to go through this again. Hmm. Well, Aaron, one of the things that uh, I've come to appreciate in this conversation is that uh, what you do is more than just a job for you. It's a lot more than just a job, which is terrific because a lot of people can't say that. Um, so I think that's um, I think that's really wonderful and, and admirable. Well, thank you. We'll close out this conversation, um, but I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, provide our listeners with um, you know any uh, the website for the for the company or any um, personal any social media kinds of things that uh, the company or you are involved in. This is your opportunity to pitch, you know, where we can get in touch with you or learn more. Absolutely. Well, I'm, uh, like I said earlier, I'm a partner at Kreindler and Kreindler. We're based in New York, but we practice all over the country and all over the world. Um, anytime somebody is injured on an airplane or killed on an airplane or in a plane crash, that's our bread and butter. That's what we do. Um, we help people through those terrible moments and, you know, help them find justice for their, uh, for their losses. 
I can be reached at um, my email address, eapplebaum at kreindler.com. I'd be happy to chat with anybody who's interested in the topics we've discussed today. Um, if I can leave you all with, with one message and the listeners with a message, I, I, I can't say it enough. We have to address these air traffic control issues. We have to figure out how to prevent what's coming. I, I wake up every day and it's no exaggeration. I wake up anxious that, that there's going to be a crash. And, you know, I watch these close calls and I see the, you know, I watch the congressional hearing and I mean, what else can the NTSB do? I mean, they're crying out for help. There has to be some change made. We have to stop talking about it. We have to start doing something. And, you know, I wish I had the solution, but, you know, somebody, somebody smarter than I has to make steps forward to, to change things. Because if we don't, I think we all know what's going to happen and, and nobody wants that. Here, here. Did you see the comment that uh, Jennifer Homedy made on, I think she made a, uh, I don't know if she was giving a talk somewhere or something, but it was in Politico where she basically told the audience, you know, enough of, of this topic of air traffic and close calls, enough talking, we've got to do something. I don't know if you have that, to be. That was you say the, that? No, that was it. Uh, that was you know. the hearing. No, that's what that that's that was at the hearing that I'm referencing. She she said that in front of, you know, in front of Congress. And what did they do? What are they going to do? I mean, what else what else can the NTSB do? I mean, she's begging right. Congress for help. So, I that if I can leave the cuz I know your listeners are all very intelligent and well-informed in aviation, somebody out there has to to know how to solve this and I think it's you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting perspective. It really is. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. All right. Well, it was a real pleasure talking to you guys. I uh, I hope we can do it again one day. Would you come back again sometime and talk to us about some other topics? Absolutely. Anytime. What's up with the geeks? Uh, I just want to make a really quick scheduling note. Christmas week, we're going to do another Bits and Pieces episode. We have some content for that, but if uh, any of you listening would like to send in a recording, we've done that in the past. We'd uh, we'd love if you you know have some aviation topic and want to send us a recording. If you need help doing that, uh, just let us know, and we can give you some tips. Um, so we will uh, be Bits and Pieces Christmas, and then uh, for the New Year's week, we'll take that week off. All right, Rob, how are we doing? So the uh, the request I had out for uh, people to send us their favorite aviation movie, uh, we're still we're still accepting uh, donations to that list. We've got quite a few. Um, I I'm kind of surprised that nobody yet has mentioned a couple of my favorites. Uh, no, don't don't don't. Uh, don't you're not don't, supposed to say them yet. No 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 no. No no, 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 no. We're not gonna. No, have... you don't. We're not gonna say ours until. We we have to talk oh, about the list. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, we're we're still accepting donations to the uh, list of favorite movies, and uh, of course, we can't tell anybody what ours are. But uh, I will be very disappointed if some of our hardcore listeners can't read my mind and figure out what those are. But no, seriously, there are some just great movies out there over the last, gosh. 70, 80 years that uh, show aviation in various lights. And uh, I, I please tell us what you think. And uh, what, after, uh, right after, let's see, are we doing the, 
uh, drawing yet? No, we're going to do it just after the first of the year, right? We want them by December 31st. By the end of the year and send them to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com and just put the word movie somewhere in the in the title. And a lot of people are describing why that particular movie has some special meaning to them. And it's really, really interesting uh, reading. It's really fabulous. So send us your favorite aviation film and just make sure it can be any film you want as long as it's not Top Gun. Yeah. So you really think that most people would have chosen Top Gun first? I mean, it was good, but I didn't think it was that good. We can talk about that later, too. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. You're right. Okay. But anyway, December 31st, uh, send us a, uh, a note, and we're going to have a random drawing uh, out of the bowl with uh, all the uh, names of the people that uh, have submitted movies. And the winner, what does the winner get, Max? The winner is going to get a $50 U.S. Gift certificate. What? Why did you say fifty dollars? Because it's I mean, not going to be in euros. Secrets? Yeah, it could or be Australian what dollars. If, Maybe we do Australian wanted... dollars, which which is uh, right, or Canadian, Canadian dollars. dollars. That would, yeah, that'd be that a would, bargain. Yeah, yeah. For not me, monopoly though. money. No. See, we could have slipped that in a disclaimer. Oh, by the way, we said it would be in monopoly money, but we didn't do that because we're not that kind of show. All right. Micah, really quick, what do you have for us? Oh, we got an email just today, I think, from uh, that just showed up from listener uh, Rob Coates, who sent it on November 9th, uh, talking about uh, the surviving Apollo astronauts. He was very happy that we talked about Ken Mattingly that inspired him to send the email. Uh, at the time that he wrote it, it was uh, two days after Frank Borman's death, but he sort of missed that. And uh, there are eight total surviving astronauts that went to the moon, uh, four of them actually walked on the moon that are still alive, four who just traveled there. But Frank Borman left us just two days before that on the 7th. And I just wanted to mention Frank Borman because he was the lead investigator of the fire for Apollo 1. And if it weren't for him, his very moving testimony to Congress where he said, and I got to quote this, we are trying to tell you that we are confident in our management and in our engineering and in ourselves. I think the question really is, are you confident in us? And if he hadn't said that, the Apollo program would probably have been canceled. Hmm, no doubt. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 4th of December, 2023. Well, g'day folks. Welcome back to the Australia Desk for this week's episode number 777. We can't call it 777 after all, can we? Grant, it's 777. This is an aviation show after all. I know, right? And we all love flying on 777s. They are so much fun, although bad luck to Boeing trying to get the 777X sorted. Mm, That could take a while longer. Oh, well, you know, they're they're aircraft that are not being manufactured. But, uh, Grant, we're going to open with a... uh, a story that's actually a really good news story here in Australia, and it's going to be a return to manufacturing, and that's for an iconic Australian single-engine aircraft, the GA-8 Airvan, or as it's more commonly known these days, the Airvan 8. This aircraft hasn't been made for quite some years after it was bought out by the Indian company Mahindra Aerospace, uh, but that uh, didn't turn out to work out so well for them, and um, grant the original owners are buying it back. Uh, yeah, one of the uh, co-founders, George Morgan, um, he, unfortunately his uh, his other co-founder passed uh, some years ago, but uh, he has managed to buy the shares back from Mahindra and uh, yeah, they, they shut down production of the GA8 back in 2020 and 
yeah, he, George is hoping to get it all started again and, and the GA8, the GA10 and progress from there. So remember that time at um, Avalon where we got to chat with the guys there in the GA10 demonstrator? Yeah, I do remember back to that, Grant. And actually, um, I've actually had a tour of their factory uh, out there in the uh, Latrobe Valley, which is a couple of hundred kilometres to the east of Melbourne, down in a uh, a large industrial town called Morwell. Now, Morwell and that area is most commonly known as being uh, the state of Victoria's power generation uh, hub at the moment. That's where all of our major power plants are located. Um, now, of course, uh, you know, with changes in the way power generation is happening these days, those plants are probably going to be on the way out in the next you know, five to 10 years, depending on which plan you look at. And there's going to be a lot of change out there uh, employment-wise. So I suppose it's only a couple of hundred jobs, but bringing back this factory at Morwell is going to be a wonderful thing. It's going to provide at least some skilled jobs back there, and I think that's a really, really wonderful thing, aside from the fact that we're getting this aircraft potentially back into production. It's a, it's a really mighty, mighty aircraft. And I suppose uh, ask any Civil Air Patrol user that too, Grant. They're probably one of the most prolific users of the air van. Yep, they uh, certainly do have a number of them over there in the States. And uh, yeah, look, great. I'm I'm really hoping they can make it happen. And you know, maybe, uh, maybe we can drop by and say hi in the new year. Uh, when I get the carby problems fixed on the on the RX seven, could be a good good excuse to take it for a spin all the way down there. And uh, fingers crossed, really hoping. And George is saying that he's looking at uh, recommencing the refurbishments, rebuilds, and things like that, and factory maintenance. And we'll see what happens. Hopefully, they can rebuild and restart. And to all the civil uh, air patrol pilots out there, we'll have a talk to them about putting more comfortable seats in them, if you like. I, saw some... <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to remember that bit. Yes, but of course, our good friend Rod Rakick, who actually uh, came out here to Australia recently and paid a visit to this very studio on his two-day visit to Australia, pretty amazing. Uh, he'll be very happy about that, I'm sure. He loves uh, loves flying the van, so that'll be great especially with better padding. But uh, speaking of people who love flying and things like that, um, yeah, there's a whole lot of people very upset with our friends at Bonza. Unfortunately, Bonza cancelled all their Darwin Gold Coast flights for the whole month of December just before it was going to start running them. Yes, and of course there was a lot of uh, PR going on from Bonza. Um, you know, uh, you know, in my role as a newsreader, I've seen those press releases coming through about uh, all of these new Bonza flights coming out. Um, You've got to wonder, Grant, they don't have a particularly large fleet, five or six aircraft, I think it is at the moment. And although their route network, as we've covered extensively in the past, doesn't really cover a lot of Australia's major capital cities, they have a different strategy. It's still quite an extensive route network. And I know a Bonza aircraft went tech last week and just one aircraft going tech caused all sorts of disruptions throughout their network. Now, whether that's played in here or not, I don't know. But you can see now some of the problems potentially that they can have when something like this happens. And it's going to stretch Bonza when they're stretching their network like this, I think. Yeah, it certainly can. The uh, lack of a call centre was a problem. People trying to use the uh, online chat system to reach support staff. And yeah, it just wasn't really working out too well. So we'll see what happens with that. But you're right, they they've just recently started Gold Coast to Tasmania flights. But people, some people only found out that the flights had been pushed back to January uh, when they arrived at the airport. Yeah, it's it's really not good enough. But I, I don't know, Grant. Look, you would hate to think that, you know, the worst is going to happen with this airline. But, you know, we – I just wonder, mate, is this – we've – problems like this, it's kind of a got a bit of a familiar feel about it. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. 
Yeah. Meow. Yes. Go cat. Gone cat. And uh, my yes. my favourite airline, Tiger Airways. I mean, they weren't really even after Virgin bought Tiger out. They weren't really a. Uh, they didn't really have a big fleet. And again, yeah. trying to stretch the you know that route network very widely, very quickly. You know, I can understand why they want to do that and get themselves out there in the market. But are they pushing it? too aggressively when their fleet is still quite small? I don't really know the answer to that question, but I, it's just something that comes to mind. Well, we can but hope for the best for them and see how they weather this. As they say, it's when things go to, um, well, the biological excretia hits the rotating blades. That's when you really find out what a company's made of. And there was enough people upset that it made a, a news post. So we'll we'll see. I don't doubt anyone's going to follow it up, but hopefully Bonzo's has managed to make things right for people. But uh, it's not just Bonzo who have been cancelling. Virgin's been in the news a bit for some delayed and cancelled flights at Adelaide that caused problems. But mm. hey, they're increasing their 737 MAX 8 aircraft order. They are. They're increasing it uh, to a total of 14 aircraft now and a total planned uh, fleet of 39 of them, which is really interesting. Grant, I should just mention with that uh, cancellation too, actually one of my family members got caught up in all of that and they were not happy. They were not happy at all. But uh, I'll bet. I'll yes. bet. But, but hey, Virgin announced the increased order of Max 8 airframes as their third airframe arrived in Australia. Yeah, and it is really cool. Like, we haven't seen a lot of the uh, 737 Maxes in this part of the world really yet. Actually, I think um, Fiji Airways might have been the first ones to start operating those. They brought a couple of them in, Grant, I remember, just before COVID, and then they mm-hmm. obviously got grounded. But, uh, yeah, we haven't seen a lot of them here. So, um, you know, if you, you're going out there to the airports, like some people, that might be just like me with all this spare time on my hand, like <coughs> to go out and yes. do a bit of plane spotting, it is actually quite striking when you see those, uh, you know, big winglets or sharklets or whatever they're called. The scimitar, the scimitar winglets. Scimitar, that's the word I was looking for. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite impressive. So good to see some uh, renewal of the uh, fleet coming in. I noticed actually a couple of uh, ex-Virgin aircraft have come, that uh, went out of the fleet, have come back now as freighters and are sort of operating around this part of the world. I just noticed that recently. So, Yep, um, and you can see a few of the former Virgin 737-800s flying with Rex, of course, in their 737 operations. And, yeah, uh, they may only have like a handful of Max 8s on order and about, is it 25 of the Max 10s, but mate, they, they've got quite a few of the uh, 800s still flying. I fly on them quite often. And, in fact, I noticed, I think it was – I think I first noticed it late last year, not early this year, when they changed the seat back you know, safety cards to say 737-800, 737-8. So one card does both. One of the other things with uh, Virgin 2 that's been in the news in the last couple of weeks since we last did a desk, this probably affects you too, Grant, being a frequent flyer with Virgin, they're looking at forging or reforging their uh, partnership with uh, Air New Zealand, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and all I can say with this is, where the heck was this when I flew to New Zealand, <laughs> took my mum, my wife, myself over to New Zealand? <sighs> we had to go Qantas because Virgin wasn't flying it. And dang, if this had been on, I could have gone over Virgin on, on an Air New Zealand aircraft and got some status credits. Oh, no, Grant. I, I shouldn't have probably put that in. That's, I probably should have put a trigger warning in before we brought this, uh, this uh, topic Too late. Up. Too late. I've got another layer on the soapbox. You know this. So what does that mean? Isn't Air New Zealand in a partnership with another rather well-known airline in this part of the world right now uh, in terms of frequent flyer schemes? Yeah, that's the fun part. As far as we're aware at the moment, the Qantas Air New Zealand domestic partnership is not being impacted by this new trans-Tasman agreement between Virgin Australia and Air New Zealand. So Air New Zealand will be carrying Virgin packs, but they'll also have this agreement with Qantas. That's 
it's fascinating. It's trying to get both sides of the Australian domestic market linked up with you. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, you know, the other little twist in this too is that that partnership that they had previously, Virgin and Air New Zealand, with their frequent flyer schemes, uh, that ran quite successfully right up until late 2018. Air New Zealand actually pulled out of that alignment over a disagreement with Virgin's then CEO, John Borghetti, who prior to being at Virgin was a big wig at Qantas. So there's a little twist for you as well. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that actually really means anything significant, but I kind of found it kind of noteworthy. <laughs> uh, it gets kind of who knew who and who was with who and all that kind of stuff within the airlines, especially in this part of the world. But yeah, uh, New Zealand didn't like where Borghetti was taking Virgin, and so they, they ditched it and went to Qantas. They didn't ditch it, Grant. They dutched it. Oh. In, the, in the in the local vernacular, dutched it. Well, and you can you can speak you can speak uh, Kiwi. I can't. And that's I am really offended at yahoo.com. <laughs> that's right. Yes, granted, Southern Skies. Meet. Anyway, oh hey, <laughs> well, well, you, well, that was you, Steve well, saying that you're a native of the land of the long white cloud, Grant. After all, you can speak you can speak that language, and you can apologise on my behalf. Anyway, before I get myself into any more trouble, I think Too we should wind it up for this week. It's a trap. <laughs> Until we come back in the next Australia desk, assuming that I haven't been, uh, you know, throttled by Grant for disrespecting his native land. I'm Steve Fisher. And I'm Grant McCarran. Now I'm going to have to just run interference on you from all the Kiwis who are going to come and try and stomp on you. <laughs> Crikey. I better climb under this desk right now. Cheers, folks. want to mention a um, YouTube video that I discovered just today, and it relates to our conversation about the Collings Foundation and the, the aircraft no longer going on the tour. And this is how many World War II fighters survive in 2023. And this is a, um, a video that was uh, put together or produced by Mark Felton, who does a lot of really, really good work. And we'll just put this uh, a link to this video in the show notes. And if you've ever wondered how many World War II fighter planes are still in existence and how many of them are still airworthy, he explains it in this video, along with some really nice uh, 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 shots of, of these aircraft, some of them historic films and some of them uh, you know more recent videos of the actual aircraft so it's uh, i did watch that video and it was really interesting and i, I really it? enjoyed it yeah and I, and I and i wrote down the list actually but what i was kind of upset about is that he did talk about uh what was it uh three seven seven different world war ii fighter aircraft but he left out another six World War II fighter aircraft that he didn't even mention that I know there were some of those flying. So I was very disappointed he didn't include all that I could think of anyway. Yeah, he's he got the sort of the major ones, the ones that, you know, most people would have would have been familiar with. And then just uh, one listener mail we want to touch on. This was from Linda. This is an article, The Owners Behind the Most Expensive Private Jets in the World. And what it does is it uh, it, it lists a bunch of really notable personalities, uh, you know, famous people, and what aircraft they own, and in some cases fly. It's really a kind of a fascinating look at who's flying what. And there's there's quite a range, uh, all the way from, uh, you know, Boeings and, and Dassos to uh, even the Cirrus aircraft. So uh, we'll put that in the show notes. You can take a look at that. It's uh, It's kind of fun to see what your favorite celebrities are flying around in. I want to fly on Mark Cuban's 767. 
Except there is one one oddball in there because it it shows Bono. Uh, is it Bono or Bono? Bono. As I said Bono, <laughs> but it, it says that his airplanes an, an Airbus A three ten, but they show an, an MD eighty uh, on the uh, in the picture, and that's kind of a mistake. Oh, I didn't notice that. Good catch. Well, thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really appreciate you listening. As always, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes are there, but if you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, which are pretty extensive this time, we have a lot of links, a lot of reference documents and things in there, you can uh, just visit airplanegeeks.com slash 777. And, of course, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Rob, where do folks find you? Same old place in in between the pages of a number of magazines, uh, but always at uh, jetwine.com and uh, at whatever particular uh, social media platform we're using these days because I I still can't figure out. We went from Twitter that became X, then we went to uh, Mammoth, and then we went to... Mass or Mastodon, mammoth. mammoth. Well, I knew it was one of those elephant kind of names, you know. But uh, uh, and uh, I, I can't tell where I am sometimes on social media, but I'm there. We'll look for you. And Micah, our main man, <laughs> the one, the one co-host that's got snow. Where, uh, where can we find you or get a hold of you? Well, you can find me on Twixter at, at MainFly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, fly, like let's go fly. And you can also find me with Pasadena Brian Coleman, our former associate producer on the Journey is Reward podcast. And we've got a number of episodes in the can, and I think a new one's coming out on Monday. That's great. All right. I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Night, everybody. And for David, thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of relates. What does it relate to? I don't remember what it relates to. All right. Find us at airplanegeeks.com. We really appreciate. We really appreciate you listening. I'm a mess.